You're listening to the Wally Local History Podcast, researched, written, and narrated by Jean Lord. This episode is kindly sponsored by the Wally Local History Group. If you're enjoying listening to this podcast, please click to follow to ensure that you're notified of each new episode. The building of Wally arches, including the human story. Wally Viaduct, the birth. An Act of Parliament in 1845 gave permission to Bolton, Blackburn, Clitheroe and West Yorkshire Railway Company to extend their operations to the industrial areas of Lancashire, which included the Ribble Valley. This venture would be fraught with problems concerning tunnels, embankments and river crossing. At the heated debates in Parliament, George Stevenson, father of the railways, was asked what would happen if a cow got onto the line. He answered, it would be a bad job for the coup. It was not welcomed by the public at large, especially the coaching companies, who could foresee a decline in their operations. The population themselves were wary of this new venture cutting through their countryside. God help old England, they are going to make her into a huge gridiron and fill her all over with hissing, steaming tea kettles, as one gentleman described it. As it turned out, they were not wrong. The work begins. Act of Parliament, 27th of July, 1846. Of seven applications from other rail companies, only this was successful. Estimated cost was £600,000, and this formed the capital for the company. Objectors spent hundreds of pounds on strenuous resistance to what they called the utopian scheme. To no avail, as the first sod was cut on the 30th of December 1846 by Lord Clitheroe. Employees Contractors Noel Hattersley and Shaw Chief Engineer Terence Wolf Flanagan, brick and tile merchant and manager of brickwork, George Clark. Brickwork overseer was let to Thomas Hilton. Brick setting and masonry, John White. Foreman and resident engineer, John Withers. Subcontractor for stonework, Lawrence Hacking of Padium. Wood, oak and larch for platforms, piles and centering. William Yates, Ironwork Bridges and Cattle Creeps, and the agent was Mr. Isaac Briggs. The Arches, 49 arches in all. Clay was taken from the cuttings on either side of the railway, on the rising ground towards Clitheroe, Hardhill Common. Making bricks. Bricks were made on either side of the arches. Moulders, temperers, horses, and even children were part of the team. Reading off on brickmaking in the 1850s, I'm in awe of the structure that is the Wally Arches. The process in those days of manual labour is amazing. First, they would have to remove the top layer to get to the usable clay, but keep it for resoiling later. Clay was dug in autumn, heaped to a depth of several feet and left to weather by the frost. Brickmaking season usually started in April when the clay was turned over with shovels and stones removed. Next, it is tempered by walking on it, usually children, or horses to bring it to a workable paste for the moulder. 
Small stones left in the clay can cause cracking when the burning process is applied. Apparently, railway bricks didn't incur the same rigorous process as others. But I can't comment on this for the archers. As the chief engineer was responsible, and reading what I have on Terence Wolf Flanagan, I would think he was a hard taskmaster and perfectionist. Bricks were made by hand by 13 brickmakers in wooden moulds. Brickmaking machinery not invented until many years later. Customs and excise inspected regularly for taxes raised for the American War of Independence. These were repealed in 1850, but too late for the archers. Teams of brickmakers came from all over the country. This involved digging, weathering, tempering, tramping or pugs, and building kilns for the baking. They worked all daylight hours, 13-hour days in the summer. Managers rented houses around Wally. Workers slept on site near brick kilns. Materials. Seven million bricks were used in the building of the arches. Tons of rubble, some from the Wilkshire Tunnel dig. 12,338 cubic metres of stone, 3,000 metres of timber for centering pillars and platforms, two tracks 650 yards long, the longest viaduct in Lancashire, but due to shortage of money, only one track was completed for the opening and terminated at Chatburn. Arches over the river are 70 feet high, for comparison, that is the same height as the parish church tower, a raft used for building in the river, oak and larch beams laid in foundations in the river and packed with concrete, not cotton as recorded in some books, referenced George Clark interview later. Accidents 1849. Arches 12 and 13 from the Billington side fell down killing three men and injuring one. John Forsyth, Thomas Keith and Charles Harrison were killed and John Lund was badly injured. The whole inquest is in the newspapers and makes fascinating reading. One man fell from an arch onto another, mixing compo, which is cement, below, and one of them was killed. The one killed was Johnny O'Connor. Just before completion in 1850, Charles Eaton was bowling a wheel from the joiner's shop at the wall end along the parapet. Whilst bowling, it tilted over. He made a grab for it and fell over the side. He was carried into Warley, but on the way he died. Soon after opening, two engines with trucks bound for Clitheroe came off the tracks at the Billington end and were dragged a long way over the arches, breaking sleepers and chairs as they ploughed the ground. However, it was noted that the arches remained standing. It resulted in some people being afraid to cross, so they would alight at Lango and walk to Wally, or vice versa. Maintenance. In 1884, first recorded strengthening. Timber piles support arches 13 and 14 in the river. 46 and 47 underpinned the first taking place in 1940s, taking nearly three years. The northernmost arch rebuilt. 
long-term monitoring in place with sensors located at various points tied to a system of alerts and alarms. Routine inspection in 2010 recorded defects in SPAN 34. Site mobilization in October 2011 for shockcreting SPAN 34 cost nearly £2 million. Speed limit already imposed at 45 miles per hour, but a further heavy axle weight restriction of 20 miles per hour was imposed. Archaeology. Arches at the entrance to the abbey were designed by Terence Wolfe Flanagan, the chief engineer, to be in keeping with their surroundings. Fish outlet from when the field was used for fish ponds for the abbey was found whilst drilling for piles, and Terence Wolfe Flanagan instructed it not to be moved. Seventy yards back from the northwest gatehouse, foundations found and thought to be an outer gatehouse or could have been old cottages. An old cottage in the corner of the field had to be demolished, not the old vicarage as sometimes recorded in history books on Worley, but a cottage tenanted by Richard Eastwood, reference actual documents from Lancashire Records Office. There were 350 workers on the whole line of 12 and three quarter miles, 54 bridges, 24 level crossings, 946,640 cubic yards of earthwork, 2,029 yards of culverts. The arches consisted of 7 million bricks, 436,000 cubic feet of stone, 10,000 feet of timber. The cost was 35 to 40,000 pounds. Arch above the river, 70 feet high, and others 30 to 40 feet. Celebrations Thursday, 20th of June, 1850, saw festivities to celebrate the completion. Shops were closed as people lined the route. A locomotive and 15 carriages were hired to take 250 specially invited people to Chatburn, where the engine was unhitched and taken down the sidings so that the local people could have a good look. School children were also allowed out to view the spectacle, dancing on the field at Wally at 6.30 in a marquee. George Clark also said at the interview that the crowds were monstrous, so much so he had to have 12 men with truncheons to keep the crowds back. They also patrolled the line at midnight and found a lever 9 to 12 feet long and a mallet lay across the metals. This was kept quiet for fear of prejudice against travelling on the railways. The day after the same excursion was arranged for the 350 workers. The railway closed in 1962 following Dr Beeching's report and was only used for goods, but after a lot of hard work, and lobbying by Friends of the Railway, it reopened in 1994. The Manager's Stories Terence Wolf Flanagan, Chief Engineer Born Lakeslip Island in 1819 to a distinguished family, he was educated in Paris and Brussels, 
and in 1836 he entered the University of Dublin. He was a linguist and a mathematician. In 1837, he was articled for five years to Mr. Charles Vinol, president of the Institute of Civil Engineers, gaining much experience of exploring the country for new railways and the parliamentary work attached. In 1843, he was resident engineer of Blackburn Preston Railway, and on the retirement of Charles Vinol, was appointed Engineer-in-Chief of Blackburn Railway and then the Chief Engineer of Blackburn Clitheroe, including the Wally Arches. Many of the bridges and arches along these lines have been designed by Terence Wolfe Flanagan. Slough Tunnel, and including a local landmark now demolished, Blackburn Market and Tower. He also designed Turton Tower Railway Bridge and Horton Tower Viaduct. After Wally, he was for two years on the construction of the Antwerp to Rotterdam Railway and on to Portugal on the Lisbon and Santarum Railway. Other projects of his are Kingston in Dublin Waterworks and Southampton Fairham Railway. It is said that during this construction, his exposure during the outdoor operations and neglect of himself, he became severely ill and died aged 41 in 1861 with congestion of the lungs. A well-respected engineer by his profession and much loved by his family and friends. Mr John Withers, civil engineer. John was born in 1819 in Lancaster. He was the resident engineer on the building of the arches in Worley. Whilst working on the viaduct, he lodged at the cottage in Worley with Reverend John Farrer Copes, incumbent at St. Leonard's Lango, and his family. He seems to have struck up a friendship with the Reverend, as they were the same age, and when John got married, the Reverend travelled to Cheshire to officiate at the ceremony. During his time at their home, their young daughter died. Several accidents occurred during the building of the 49 arches, many resulting in death. I have mentioned the three at the fall in 1849 and the other incidents. John would have had to be summoned at all the inquests, being the resident engineer. After the completion of the arches, we find him living at the Abbey and his land agent for the Archbishop of Canterbury. The census of 1861 shows him at the Abbey with his wife, four small children, brother-in-law, governess, cook, servant, and a monthly nurse attending. He was also a borough surveyor for Blackburn and wrote an extensive report on the sanitary conditions of Blackburn. He states in the report that he is greatly disturbed by the death rate because of conditions, the lack of privies, inadequate drainage systems and narrow roads. He oversaw the planning of Blackburn Workhouse and was instrumental in building a proper bridge, which today has developed into a landmark of Blackburn. You only have to search his name in all newspapers to find how many committee meetings he attended. In 1857, he resigned as a councillor for St. John's Ward due to the heavy workload as borough surveyor. In 1859, his friend and confidant, 
the Reverend John Farrer Colts was killed when his carriage overturned. John had an office in Blackburn and was still involved as a consultant on railways. One Saturday morning in 1862, he went in as usual on the early train. His office boy said he was greatly agitated and was pacing to and fro. He had an appointment later that morning. An old lady came round begging, and he gave her tuppence, about £1.60, which was a daily occurrence. He wrote some letters and sent his boy to the post. This boy said he drank several glasses of water, but would not have any food when asked. The boy said he was very pale. When the gentleman came for the appointment and was directed to his office, he was not there. After a search, he was found hanging in the stairwell. There was no note, but a letter on his desk in red ink asking when he could be expected to advise on the new line to Chorley. Afterwards, the people who travel with him every day by train said he had become withdrawn. Some said they had tried to cheer him up by inviting him to join them for a drink, but he always refused. From being very amicable and friendly, he had become quiet and reserved. At his home, Ellen the cook could not get him to eat properly, and she said he would sometimes go for days just lying on the couch, unwashed or unshaven. No comment from the family, but it does beg a question, doesn't it? No reason came to light to suggest why John would have done this so all they could record was that he was disturbed of mind, some even recording lunacy. So many deaths under his watch, horrible living conditions of people he was fighting to give better lives, and the early death of his friend. Too much to bear alone by a man who was always there for others. Coincidentally, his friend, the Reverend John Farrer Coates, is buried in the next plot to him, D139, D140, even though they died three years apart. George Clark, born in Buckinghamshire in 1819, first worked with railways in Derbyshire and Gloucestershire. He was a brick and tile merchant and was in charge of brick-setting for the length of the arches. Here I will insert an actual interview with George Clark about 1896. I was then about 30 years of age. I had a horse at my command, and rode or walked not less than 16 miles per day along the length. There were 13 brickmakers under me employed in the connection with the Wally arches. The clay for the brick was got from the railway embankment and the bricks were made on both sides of the railway, on the rising ground towards Clitheroe and near the present brickworks. The bricks were taken down in wagons by the side of the line and drawn up in wheelbarrows by horses with a pulley. A man at the top pulled the wheelbarrows on as they arrived. The barrel was let down by hooking the wheel. The foundations of the pillars of the arches were very carefully laid. We used a float or raft to get about the foundation of the pillar in the bed of the calder. There were, however, no bales of cotton placed beneath the foundations, has been so erroneously stated. 
Under the big pillar on the Billington side, there are three large bulks which extend up both sides a long way and are well packed with concrete, as there is quicksand underneath and it had such a poor foundation. During the erection of the arches on the wally side of the river, Calder was very much swollen, and while the pillar was being built in the river, I went up to the top of the gantry to fetch some blocks and pulleys to make safe, as I thought, a little boiler and engine, which I feared the flood would wash away. Whilst I was up there, the water rose considerably, and I could not get back. I called for a rope to put round me, and having fastened it around my waist, I threw the rope to the men and told them to pull me out. Whilst I had hold of the blocks and the pulleys, they pulled me through the water. We put chains around the boiler and fastened it to another pillar and made it secure with the blocks so that it should not sink in the river. Unfortunately, the derrick did not prove weighty enough to stay the bulks in the calder, as I hoped they would. Consequently, the flood carried the bulks away, and the derrick was plunged into the water. Many of the bulks floated down the river, and we had to recover them as best we could, some of them sailing down to Ribchester. Unquote. George rented a cottage on Church Lane Wally in 1845 and he can still be found there on the 1851 census across from the court's gate. He joined the Methodist chapel and became a stalwart and preacher, encouraging the railway workers and families to attend, so the numbers increased. In 1851, on his 32nd birthday, George moved his family to Rishton, along with his brothers and their families who had worked on the arches. At this time, the numbers fell at the Methodists, but as it coincided with the death of Bernard Hartley, the founding family in Worley, it was said that this was the reason. I leave it to you to ponder. Finding nowhere to worship in Rishton, George set up a chapel in his own home against considerable opposition where services were conducted for several years. Through his efforts, a piece of land was secured, not as large as he wanted, though, and a chapel built. He had his own brickworks and built Victoria Mill. George lived to a grand age of 90, and his faith never left him. He is well remembered in Rishton, as a number of the population is now connected from his family. Thomas Hilton Born in Blackburn, he was responsible for the tunnels and culverts along the line. He had agreed with Solomon Longworth to build the Judge Wormsley Mill. So as they were digging out the stone from the Wiltshire Tunnel for the railway line, Thomas was purchasing it for the planned mill. He, like the other managers, was responsible for the men, so would be called to inquest on accidents. There were many at Wiltshire because all the digging was done manually and very hard labour and resulted in falls of rock. The line was opened in 1850 and Thomas started immediately on the mill. He was greatly helped by the fact that the stone could now be moved along the newly constructed line to Billington. A siding line was constructed at the bridge over the road with access at the end of railway view, up the side of the embankment. 
a road was constructed which followed what is now Bank Cottages. Thomas was now an employer of eight men. On completion of the mill, he started to build in Blackburn, Duxbury Street and Hilton Street. He entered the Masonic Lodge of Perseverance. His son followed in his footsteps and expanded the Hilton Company. There may be other stories, so research continues. In my research, I must thank Clitheroe and its Railway and Coaching Days by Stephen Clark, a rudimentary treatise on the manufacturing of bricks and tiles by E. Dobson, Parliamentary Applications for Railway Lines, Lancashire Records Office, Terence Wolfe Flanagan Family, Catherine Owens, Thomas Hilton Descendant, Rishton Remembered by Kathleen Broderick, Ribble Valley Rail, Ancestry, Find My Past and All Newspapers, and not least, Voice It PR for editing, packaging and production. I hope you enjoyed the human story of the men and their contribution to engineering, not often talked about. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to know more, please go to Worley Local History, the Facebook group, and ask to join. And if you're in Worley or visiting Worley, please go to Worley Old Grammar School where we have a heritage room. In there you'll find lots of photos and information about Worley Local History. See you next time.